Welcome back to the Andy Hale Podcast, everybody. Today we're going to be talking about the Star Rock Murders. I'm so excited to have Whitney Braun back. Whitney, hello. Hello. Good to see you. It is good to be back. I wish that uh, I was back under uh, more joyous circumstances, that this conviction had been vacated and we were now, you know, planning a celebratory, you know, tour around the country. But uh, I'm with you. I'll take any opportunity to keep talking about this case. Well, today I want to basically talk about some updates with the case with with court hearings. So I want to give everybody an update in terms of some recent court hearings we had to keep everybody in the loop. I do think, as we will talk about, we took a big step forward forensically uh, at this last court hearing, but let's walk through it. Okay. So the first update is we had brought a motion to appoint a new special prosecutor. The basis of that was that we thought Will County State's Attorney's Office just wasn't doing anything. They weren't interviewing our witnesses. They were opposed to all of our testing. Uh, They weren't really reviewing documents. So we brought a motion. As everybody knows, I posted that last time. We had a court hearing, uh, and the court denied that motion. Now, that was not unexpected. It is a very difficult burden. You have to show an actual conflict of interest by the state's attorney, which I really couldn't show. But I thought the hearing was really interesting. I'm going to post on the Andy Hill podcast website a transcript of that court hearing from June 20th. Uh, I encourage everybody to go read it. If you're really into, if you want to really dig in and learn more of the details, I'm going to post this court transcript. You can read exactly what transpired at the court hearing. But there's some things, Whitney, I want to point out about the transcript. Well, hey, Andy, can I ask a question just on behalf of our our audience? Yeah. Can you explain the difference between a demonstrated conflict of interest and suspicion of a conflict of interest? You know, a conflict of interest is like, oh, you're the state's attorney and it's your cousin that got charged with a DUI. So, you know, you've got a conflict of interest. It's typically something like that. It's like a family relationship. You've got a personal interest in the case. You know, mine was just a suspicion that something happened mm-hmm. that was causing James Glasgow, the Will County State's Attorney's Office, to back off. I still believe there's something that I don't know about. Uh, I did do a FOIA for Mr. Glasgow's phone records for the week period in which he told me the evidence was a complete disaster. He wasn't going to let me look at it. Uh, Will County hasn't given me those yet, but. I'm going to pursue that. So we'll see. So it's a, it's a really hard burden. It's very rare that a state's attorney gets disqualified for having a conflict. But I want to go to this transcript. This was pretty stunning to me when I heard this in court. Uh, and I'm just going to read you what the Will County state's attorney said in response to all my arguments about how they weren't doing anything. And they were first responding to, you know, my woman who reached out about her grandfather who said, you know, he hired these, he brought, he, he was in the mob and he hired these guys, the mob, hired, you know, the husband hired these guys to go down there and, and kill the women and her grandfather handpicked the men. All right. She says, well, I would respond that we don't take issue with whether she's telling the truth or not. She obviously told an employer of hers the same thing. I don't take any issue with Miss Smith saying this occurred. 
what the state's response is that it can lead to nothing. The grandfather's dead. All these people who would have had any information as to whether this was a 1960s mafia hit are dead. The grandfather's dead. I don't know what else, what other information Miss Smith could possibly allude to, because again, she was, I think she was 14 or 15 when these statements were made. The state can't really investigate the 1960s mob and go back in time and investigate the 1960s mob. So we don't take issue with Mrs. Smith's credibility. Okay, wait a minute. You can't investigate the 1960s mob. What are you talking about? I mean, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Yes, you can. Go back and talk to people. Try to find documents. I mean, yes. What? You can't. That, that would mean you can never investigate a cold case. Oh, everybody's dead. Uh, what can we do? Throw our arms up in the air. You know? But I mean, that's that's also just like saying, well, the entire academic discipline of historical research doesn't count because, you know, once people are dead, we can't know anything. It's the truth is lost. We just, we, there's no way to factually corroborate anything. I, I just was so, I, I really encourage people to read this court transcript. I mean, I just, when I heard that in court, like, we can't investigate the 1960s mafia. I mean, what are you talking about? Yes, you can, you know? And she's saying, oh, we don't, we don't take issue with what Miss Smith said. We don't, we, we don't take issue with your credibility. Okay. If you believe what she said, then Chester Weger's innocent, period. If, if you're not taking issue with your credibility, uh, and if you're taking it as true, <laughs> then he's innocent. I mean, I, I, I was just so flabbergasted with that. I, I struggle sometimes, Andy, like reading this and listening to you repeat after it, after I've read it, the logic, right? Or, or lack thereof. I mean, it's just Chester Weger's still alive. He was around in the 60s. Are there people living today that were alive in the 60s? I mean, I could maybe say, okay, Ancient Egypt, 5,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, 500 years ago. We can't know, right? That's just too long ago. But there are people alive who were, you know, existing and functioning in the 1960s. I just, I, this logic just, it, it blows my mind. I want to bring up another thing on page 41. So basically what Will County argued was, you know, it was the greatest hits from 1960. He confessed. It got... The jury found him guilty and it got affirmed on appeal, you know. <laughs> so the judge on page 41, he says to, to Will County, is it enough to rely on what happened in the 1960s? And I love that. I love that question. It was exactly right. And Will County says in response, I believe it's enough. Yes. Uh, where we have not been presented with anything, any valid information that would suggest the confession was coerced. Oh, my God. It's like. Have they not read anything I've given? The fact that he was trailed 24-7. The Illinois State Police literally followed him 24-7 for four or five weeks. You know, that he was threatened with the riding the thunderbolt. I mean, mm -hmm. to say nothing that would suggest the confession was coerced. And the fact that, how about the fact that he claims the murder weapon was the log? And we've shown... <laughs> That the, the log could not have been the murder weapon. I mean, oh my God, it just, it's just hard to yeah. understand how they could say something like that. Will County said, defendant has shown us nothing that would make us believe that we can't rely on what occurred in 1960. <laughs> really? Nothing? What about Mrs. Zelensek, the telephone operator? What about the Palmateer brothers? What about Lupe Cardenas? What about Mrs. Smith and Mr. Tyson? I mean, my God, it just... I don't know what to say to that. It, it's just unbelievable. 
the other thing the court said I thought was interesting and denied my motion. Uh, this is on page 64. The court says, uh, this court is not an ethics court. I'm not here to make decisions about whether there was a violation of Illinois Supreme Court Rule 3.8, which is a prosecutor's obligation to seek justice, mm-hmm. not just convictions. The court just found that there was no conflict of interest. But I thought that was interesting. What the court was saying was, a lot of my argument really was, was there a, did Will County you know, violate their ethical obligation to seek justice, which the judge is right. He, the judge doesn't have jurisdiction to rule on that, but kind of left the door open on that issue. So I just thought that was kind of telling that the way the judge said that. Okay, so that's the special prosecutor. So Will County is still in the case. We're moving forward together, whether we like it or not. That was the first update. The second update is uh, we just had a court hearing recently, and there were there were two big rulings that went in our favor. The first was we had brought a motion for a second motion for forensic testing, which the court granted. Let me explain why this is important. What we requested was a two-step process. Basically, we identified, let me backtrack. You know how we had the hair on Mrs. Murphy's glove, and we got yeah. DNA, and it's not mm-hmm. Chester Weger. It's a male profile. And Will County said, well, so what? You know, uh, who could be anybody? So <laughs> let's do more. Let's test more hairs. So we identified about 40 more hairs that are in slides, found on the women, found in various parts of their clothing, or found at, at the crime scene on or near their bodies, about 40 of these slides. Now, we can't just, we're not going to just take those 40 slides, send them all to a Bodhi technology to test. It's going to be, it's just not an efficient way to do it. That'll be too much time and money. So the first step is we're going to, the court is allowing us to do this. We're going to send all those 40 slides to Microtrace. And as if you recall, Microtrace are our experts. They're microscopists. They look at things under a microscope. They're world-renowned. They're going to try to identify hairs that they're going to compare those 40 slides, the hairs, to known hair standards of the women. Try to find hairs that, that look like they did not come from the women that have roots and could be tested for DNA. Uh, and I'm hoping after that process, we can identify, you know, at least at least a few, if not, you know, three, four, five, six hairs that we can then send to Bodhi Technology to do more DNA testing. If you remember back in the day, there were newspaper articles saying it looked like they had found at least two types of hair at the crime scene, like mm-hmm. a light colored hair and a dark colored hair. So... I thought this was a huge development that we're going to potentially, you know, we're going to send these hairs to Microtrace, and I think we're going to hopefully identify some more hairs that we can test for DNA. And then there's a second part of that motion. Do you recall how in Chester's interrogation, they asked him if he urinated on any of the women, if he defecated on any of the women? Clearly they had a basis to ask those questions. Mrs. Murphy's autopsy said she had soiled clothing. We don't have much of her, Miss Murphy's clothing, um, very little, I think just her gloves. We've got more clothing of the other two victims, Mrs. Odin and Mrs. Lindquist. But the judge gave us permission for Microtrace to look at all the clothing we've got, to look at it under a microscope to see if there might be microscopic evidence of urine or feces, some kind of a stain, it's a long shot for sure, but if we find something like that, we can then test that stain for DNA. 
So I thought that was a really big step forward because we are now going to be in a position to potentially develop more forensic evidence in the case. And I've always felt like that's how we're going to break this case open forensically. You know, you and I can argue till the cows come home about, you know, all the things that we've talked about in this podcast the last 20 episodes. Uh, but the forensics, I think, are what are going to drive the nail in the coffin. Logic and, uh, you know, sort of common sense just haven't seemed to to sway anyone. I think you're right. I mean, it's just it, it, it's going to take some sort of irrefutable scientific fact. And, and I know that day is going to come. And I'm just I'm, I just I just I cannot wait until we can get some sort of identifiable piece of evidence that that's going to blow everything open. And so just so people know the timeline. So this evidence, uh, we're going to be going out to the LaSalle County Sheriff's Office probably in the next week. Microtrace is all the evidence is these 40 slides that have hairs in them that are all labeled are going to be taken to Microtrace where Microtrace is going to look at it all under various types of microscopes, a very sophisticated, non-destructive microscopic analysis. You know, that's all going to happen in August. So I'll keep everybody posted in terms of how the progress with that goes. And like I said, hopefully we can send it to Bodhi Technology for the second part, which is DNA testing. All right, but here's the part I think I'm the most excited about, genealogy. So that hair that we found on the left index finger of Mrs. Murphy's glove, that we got a DNA profile, it's not Chester Weger, it's a male, that's the same finger where her fingertip was cut off, we're going to be able to send that hair extract to a lab in Texas called Othram, O-T-H-R-A-M. They are a leading laboratory, one of only a couple that does this kind of genealogy work. And the court granted our request to do this. And what has to happen is the Othram people, their lab people will do genetic sequencing of that hair extract, hopefully, okay? Uh, there's a chance, you know, that they may be unsuccessful, but but they think they've seen all the data. They think they can do it. They first develop a genetic profile, and then once you get that genetic profile, you then build up the family tree using genealogy databases, and you try to basically, at the end of the day, find out who is the source of that hair. Can you imagine if 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 someday we can say that hair on Mrs. Murphy's glove came from, boom, whoever? I feel like that day will come. <laughs> I feel like that day will come, and I am just, I am, I am dreaming of it. I, I honestly, Andy, I, I, I think about it maybe twice a day. Oh my I just, God. I, I, No, I mean honestly, yeah. I'll, I'll just be yeah. at the grocery store, and it will just suddenly hit me that like that information can be found. Right? We live in yeah. a in a time when science can glean that information, and I just, I, 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 it, it honestly crosses my mind probably twice a day. Well. The way this came about was, you know, Bodhi Technology was trying some genealogy on their end, and they were having some difficulty with it. And this was just a few weeks ago. I was reading the uh, Sunday New York Times. It was a big front page article about the Idaho murders, you know, mm -hmm. those four yeah. uh, college students that were killed in Idaho. Yeah. And it talked in this article about how the local police teamed up with Othram, this lab in Texas, because they had found some DNA, I think, on a knife sheath. That was left in the house and they were able to i think get some dna develop a profile and it all led back to this young man who's been charged 
but they used genetic genealogy to kind of crack the case. And it'd be, I think, like I've said this before, I think it'd be really fitting for a 1960s case to be cracked with this, this cutting edge 2023 genetic technology. That would just be um, so fitting. Now, um, just so everybody gets a time frame for that, Atherm has told me it takes 12 to 16 weeks to do the lab work, which is to kind of basically do the genetic sequencing. And then uh, the genealogy part just depends on what they can see yeah. in the genealogy databases. They said it could take a week, two weeks to a couple months, you know? So yeah. it, we're looking basically at five months, probably minimum. So I'm hoping that maybe by the end of the year, we we are getting close and maybe we have an update. But I'm super excited about the possibility that Othram can identify through genetic genealogy the person whose hair is on the left index finger of Mrs. Murphy's glove. That could be the final piece of the puzzle that we need. And I just thought with the court allowing us to do both those things, yeah. um, to both you know, look for more hair evidence to test for DNA and to send this one particular hair to Othram, we took a huge step forward with our forensic investigation. We now have the opportunity to do these things. It's, it's incredible. I mean... I mean, I, at the risk of sounding like my grandfather uh, here, you know, he used to say, "What a time, right? <laughs> what a time we live in that, that that this is that this is possible." Because had you been trying to do this twenty five, thirty years ago, these doors would have been closed. These would just not have been options on the table. No, exactly. You know, um, we'd have been out of luck. So, and I want people to know, I'm still investigating. I'm still trying to talk to people in the uh, Illinois Valley area near Star Rock State Park, especially older people that were around back when the Star Rock murders happened. If anybody knows anybody like that, please reach out. I would love to talk to anybody. If it's your grandmother, grandfather that might know something, even if it's anecdotal, uh, it all helps. We also just one other little update, you know, um, the Will County State's Attorney's Office had interviewed James Murphy a while back, who um, they had asked to do a DNA test to see who his biological father is. And he to date has um, declined to do so. So we wanted to know whether his biological father was Robert Murphy, the husband of Francis Murphy, because if it is, that's significant because that would mean he fathered a child with the woman he married two years later. It all kind of jives with, you know, a lot of the evidence we put together. So I'll keep everybody updated on that. One last topic. I want to talk a little bit more about John Reed and the polygraph. And this is something, it's kind of an area that, I mean, most people don't know much about. There's no reason anybody would know much about it, which is this, this the polygraph exams. And going back to 1960, I want to just explain, I did a little more research on this issue. Because uh, I think the, the response we get today is, oh, Chester Weger confessed. He's guilty because he confessed, right? He failed the polygraph and he confessed. What people don't realize, it's a lot more complicated than that. And let's pause. He passed, Chester passed the first six polygraphs given by the Illinois State Police. It wasn't until months later he's taken to Chicago to this guy, John Reed. John Reed was a former Chicago police officer who developed this 
polygraph technique that was very controversial, and it still is controversial. And it had a very, a very confrontational aspect to it. You know, it's not like you just go in a room, take the test, and you're out in 15 minutes. There's a whole process where, you know, you kind of basically, you know, grill the person and kind of get in their face. And it's very controversial. I'm going to post on the website. I want people to read this. We have we retained an expert named Brian Cutler on the issue of false confessions. And I'm going to post, there's, Mr. Cutler has a whole section of his report talking about how John Reed developed this technique, why it's controversial, the way he, it's, it's accusatory, it's guilt presumptive technique. And I want people to read this, you know, because it's really interesting. I don't want people to think like, oh, he confessed to John Reed. Yeah. Well, okay. It was a very controversial technique at, at back in the day, and it still is. And here's the part that I found the most interesting when I was doing a little more research. I found, I found some old cases of false confessions that John Reed obtained. Okay. I'm going to post this on the website too. I want everybody to read these articles. Uh, the first one I want to talk about was in 1955, there was a guy named Daryl Parker. This case, I believe, was in Iowa. His wife is found murdered. He is, he becomes a suspect and winds up confessing to John Reed, but then recants soon thereafter and claims he was threatened and kind of coerced. Well, years later, uh, there's a guy who confessed, who was some kind of handyman and confessed to the murder. And Daryl Parker got exonerated and received compensation from the state of Iowa. So in 1955, you know, it's an example of John Reed getting this young guy in his 20s to confess to killing his wife when he didn't, <laughs> when he didn't kill her. And the Reed technique was utilized in obtaining the confessions for the Central Park Five, too. I mean, not not John Reed himself, but that that technique. I mean, it's 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 infamous. Yes, it is infamous. It's exactly right. And so I want people to know that. And here's another stunning case I found when I was just doing a little research. And like I said, this is just me poking around. It wasn't like I did some exhaustive, uh, thorough, let's spend sure. a whole month doing this. In 1958, okay, so this is two years before Chester Weaker and the Starbreck murders. There was a fire at a school in Chicago that actually, tragically, I mean, 90 people died. Hmm. 90 people died in this school fire. I hadn't even heard of this case. Well, then at some point later, there was a tip that this young boy, this like 13-year-old boy, who had set some other fires, smaller fires, may have set this fire that killed these 90 people, students and nuns at this Catholic school. John Reed gives him a polygraph, and, and the boy confesses. The boy confesses to John Reed to and setting this fire. How old is this boy again? I think he was 13. Oh, wow. And yeah, he was 13. And, and guess what? He had a trial then. Okay. The case went to a trial and the judge refused to, uh, the judge basically did not believe the confession that he mm -hmm. gave to John Reed. Let me read you part of an article. And again, I'm going to post this on the Andy Hill podcast website. Please read these articles. The judge said that the confession to the school blaze was contradicted 
by all the circumstantial and physical evidence which was adduced in open court. I mean, the judge noted that the boy's story uh, was contradictory to everything that had been said about, you know, the actual physical evidence. Uh, the judge observed that the only similarity to known facts about how the fire started was the boy's statement that he set fire to a cardboard trash barrel with metal rims in the basement. The boy, however, said the barrel was under a staircase, while Sergeant Brown and Chief James Kehoe of the fire arson squad testified earlier that it was at the foot of the staircase. Other discrepancies in which the boy's confession did not jive with the actual physical layout. And he also said he was critical of Reed's methods during the seven-hour session. How, do, how is this a polygraph when you're seven hours with a person? It's not a polygraph. It's an interrogation. And Seven hours was, with a child. Yeah, he was troubled by what they did. And, and he, his representation of the boy that he needed to sign every page to make sure his file was complete. I mean, so the judge didn't even give it any weight. Wow. And he acquitted this boy of setting this fire. And also, one last thing, the famous Miranda versus Arizona decision, which I'm going to post on the website too, in 1966, which basically said, you know, you, you have to have, uh, be told that you have a right to an attorney. Everything mm -hmm. you, you can say could be used against you. At several points in that landmark opinion, the court is critical of the Reed technique. At several points in that opinion, and my expert Brian Cutler talks about that in his opinion. So I've dumped a lot of kind of technical stuff on everybody out there, but for those who like that kind of stuff, you want to read, you're interested in some of the law, some of the facts, uh, you want to take a deeper dive, go to andyhalepodcast.com, go to this website episode. I'm going to post it all there. You can read about Brian Cutler's report, his criticisms of the read technique, the Miranda decision, the Daryl Parker case, this 13-year-old boy who falsely confessed to John Reed uh, over this fire, you know, in 1958. So I thought that was pretty stunning to read those things about John Reed extracting those false confessions from other people back at the same time frame as Chester Weaker. Yeah. I feel like uh, when I've read the, the, the tactics employed by John Reed, I've thought to myself, I would have confessed to anything to make it stop. Right. Just, right. Uh, just, just capitalizing on on fatigue. Right. Just basically, like you said, seven hours or, or longer in other cases, you know, just just relentlessly hounding a person to the point that, like, I could see myself breaking just to just to make it stop. So I could just go, like, take a nap and, like, recover and just go, yeah, 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 sure, sure. Whatever. Whatever you say. And so in our case, if you remember, Chester Weger, he goes to Chicago. He doesn't confess to John Reed, yeah. like, who was with him all day. You yeah. know, they try to break him. He's there all day. And even riding back, they're threatening him with, you know, the electric chair. It's finally then after that next month when they follow him, surveil him 24-7, then arrest him without probable cause, say he's going to basically, you know, get the electric chair. They finally break him down and he confesses, you know. So everybody needs to really look closely at the circumstance of Chester Weger's confession. Because as we've said, and I'm a broken record, all the hallmarks, all the factors of a false confession are present. That's all they had. It's inconsistent with the physical evidence. The story makes no sense. And I go back to Will County saying we've given them no evidence, any credible evidence that Chester Weger is innocent. It's like, 
oh my God, it's, have you not looked at those 75 pieces of evidence that I laid out in that 10 page letter I sent to you? So anyway, Whitney, that is the update. I'm excited about the forensic possibilities that await us. We're going to be on this forensic journey for the rest of the year. And I will be sure you know, as soon as I get an update or result, our listeners will be the first to know. We'll be back on this podcast with an update. But I'm so glad we're getting a chance to forensically do more because that's ultimately going to be what is the final puzzle piece. Yeah, it will happen. I just, I, I have perhaps a uh, a Pollyanna view of this, but I, I just, I just feel like the science will prevail in the end and the truth will come out. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. All right, we'll be back in touch. Stay tuned, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Star of Rock Murders. This has been such an incredible journey, uh, but we are not done, not by any stretch. Please visit our website, as I said, andyhalepodcast.com. We're going to be posting documents and uh, all kinds of things of interest in the case. If you know anything about the Star Rock murders, please email us. No information or tip is too small. It all matters. We really need your help. And if you know of anyone that you think was wrongfully convicted, if there's another Chester Weger out there, reach out. I'd love to hear about that as well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcast. Your reviews and ratings mean so much to Whitney and me. This episode was produced in collaboration with Phineas Ellis and Studio Friends. Design, content, and promotion by Bell and Ivy, and hosted by myself and Whitney Braun. We'll see you next time.